by, uh, by my count, and I may not have counted totally correct, so take that for what it's worth, but by my count, the United States has over 190 um, official primary ambassadors sent out to the different countries of our world. And, and those ambassadors, of course, are, are sent to uh, really to serve as a representative for us in foreign matters of interest to our country. So these, these ambassadors typically reside in or near uh, the United States Embassy that's been set up in, in each of these countries. And so those embassies themselves are, are, are meant to be outposts of the United States, outposts which function according to the purposes, according to the customs of our own country. And so, so this means that even if I went to a foreign country where I largely found myself in a culture where I, I'm kind of in culture shock, that I could, could go to the U.S. Embassy and, and feel much more like I'm at home, the U.S. Embassy in that country. So even though residing in a foreign land, that embassy functions like our own country, especially in terms of laws and customs. And so, in a way, the people of Israel in the Bible were to be something like that here on earth. God, God chose Abraham. God made him into a nation of people that were to serve as his ambassadors here on earth. And so they were to live here on earth, but yet anyone who lived among them ought to have experienced what things were like in the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? You're tracking with me there? Now, now, in fairness, God's people carried out that calling with varying degrees of success through the years. And quite often, the success or failure of the people to live that out was closely tied to the human king that was ruling at that particular time. But if we go back to our American ambassadors for a moment, Let's imagine this scenario. Uh, imagine for just a minute that the American ambassador to Fiji, for example, had held that position for 40 years. So imagine they'd been in that position for 40 years. And imagine that during those 40 years, that ambassador and their staff, for the most part, had not traveled back to America one time. For 40 years, they've been ambassadors and staff in Fiji. Now we might imagine that over the course of those 40 years that the embassy in Fiji and the functions taking place within that embassy might begin to look more and more like Fiji and less and less like America, especially if they hadn't traveled back to America during those four decades. So after being surrounded by Fijian culture for 40 years, that, you know, it would make sense that things might shift that way. Now, now imagine that the President of the United States showed up one day in Fiji and visited this embassy with the ambassador and their staff. The very leader of the people whom that ambassador represents shows up at the door. I mean, let's imagine that. I, I would assume that upon doing so, 
I would assume that the president would encourage some changes to be made in order that uh, the embassy in Fiji might return to something that more closely represents, uh, resembles the United States, don't you think? Uh, the president may urge changes to be made that go against Fijian culture, but yet align more closely to that of the United States culture, customs, laws, that type of thing. Now, if we go back to, to Scripture, I, I, think in, I think an argument can be made that, that God's people at the time of Jesus, so as we're talking in the Gospel of Luke, I think an argument can be made that, that God's people weren't quite functioning as the ambassadors they were called to be. Uh, their customs, their traditions, I think, had begun to look more and more like that of the world and less and less like that of their king and his kingdom. It might have looked a bit more like Roman culture. They might have just even looked at times a bit more like Jewish culture that had almost become its own thing at that time. Now, now imagine that then the king himself came to visit his people. What, what might he say to them? What might he say that would help them better understand who he was as the king and, and how his kingdom functioned? What might he say? That, that really is what we're going to find in Luke's gospel today as we pick it up where we left off. Now, uh, I'll just forewarn you, we're going to cover quite a bit of ground today. And I, I, uh, I know I've been gone a couple of weeks lately, so I thought I'd make up for it today with a seven-point sermon. And it's in my contract that I can do this, so I'm just kidding. But, I, but look at your sermon notes. It really is a seven-point sermon today. There's a number of short scenes that we're going to explore this morning. Uh, but as we're going to see, in each one of these scenes, Jesus is communicating something about the nature of his own character and the nature of his kingdom. So even though there's kind of these rapid-fire scenes, the theme is his kingdom. And, and as you can see by the, by the sermon title, kingdom principles. Principles regarding his nature and his kingdom. So, so let's just dive right in. We are in Luke chapter 13. And we're starting this morning in verse 10 of chapter 13. It says, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had, been, who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to, to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. 
Now, now this general scene is not new to Luke's gospel. We've already seen a couple episodes where the religious leaders confronted Jesus about his actions on the Sabbath. So that isn't new. In this situation, a, a woman who had been suffering for 18 years, 18 years with an injured back, was healed. Marvelously healed. I mean, and, and as a result, she was glorifying God. And then upon that healing taking place, the synagogue ruler, the leader of that particular synagogue, started berating the people about how they ought to come on the other six days and be healed then instead of on the Sabbath. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if, if a woman in our own midst this morning had been suffering for 18 years and then suddenly this morning God's power worked to bring her physical healing and can you imagine if I got up here and just started scolding all of us because of it? That there's six other days during the week that that can happen. Not, not this morning. Not on Sunday morning. I mean, it seems clear to me that, that the weekly Sabbath gathering at the synagogues, over the years, they had become something that didn't represent God's kingdom as closely as it maybe once did. They had, they had veered away from that. And when Jesus showed up and did something that revealed the kingdom, that, that kind of brought it back to what the Sabbath was always meant to be, man, they, uh, uh, he was met with resistance, at, at least from the leader of that synagogue. And, and this same type of scene happens at the beginning of chapter 14 as well. So uh, skip ahead with me for just a moment. We're going to tie these two together. Uh, chapter 14, verse 1 says this. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you? Having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out. And they could not reply to these things. So again, same type of scene on the Sabbath. This time, Jesus is at a meal at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. And, and in a situation, it seems kind of likely that the, the sick man was a plant, Probably. It seems like he was purposely put there by the Pharisees in order to see what Jesus would do. And Jesus, again, lived according to the nature of his kingdom, and he healed the man, even though it was the Sabbath. So what, what we're going to do this morning in, in each of the short scenes that we're looking at is highlight the kingdom principle that we see there. So, so in this instance, these two scenes that are on the Sabbath, the kingdom principle is that people take precedence over tradition. People take precedence over tradition. Now, now this doesn't mean that God's laws, that God's commands are just ignored, pushed to the side. It doesn't mean that the Sabbath is disregarded. However, nowhere in the Bible does it say that healing can't take place on the Sabbath. That, that belief only came about because of the way in which the fourth commandment was interpreted. It was interpreted in a way that 
they thought healing on the Sabbath was work, and so thusly that was wrong to do. But by healing on the Sabbath anyway, Jesus, he, he wasn't setting aside the command of God. He was setting aside the tradition of men. I mean, that's, that's what he was doing. And, and traditions, and don't get me wrong, traditions can be very good things. Traditions can, can provide continuity between generations. Uh, traditions can communicate meaning and purpose. They, they can provide wonderful teaching opportunities but traditions are never meant to become something more important than God himself or more important than people. That, that, that's getting things out of order, as Jesus is showing here. See, the, the religious leaders had that order backwards, and so they were quite content with a person's suffering for another day rather than being healed on the Sabbath in, just in order to uphold their tradition. That, that, was, that was the reason. That shouldn't be that way. Shouldn't be that way. And so that's what Jesus was showing. That's not how it is in God's kingdom. So we can take that principle from those, those two scenes. So as we continue on, going, going back to uh, chapter 13 where we left off, uh, Jesus next gave two real short sayings that again reveal something else about his kingdom. So this is chapter 13, verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now, now, you've maybe heard this before, but, but the mustard seed was the smallest seed common to farmers in that culture. And yet, from that very small seed grew a plant that could reach six or 10 or, or even 15 feet in height. And then likewise with yeast, yeast was something very small, yet Yet when it's mixed in with dough, it causes the dough to rise into something much bigger. And, and in this instance, when Jesus talks about uh, three measures of flour, that, that's equivalent to 50 to 60 pounds of flour. I, I mean, that, that would have produced enough bread to feed 100 people. So th this is a large amount of flour Jesus is talking about. So for just a little bit of yeast or a little bit of leaven to, to permeate 50 pounds of flour... Is, is another example of something small having this great impact. And so it, it, it's in these two sayings that we find the, the next kingdom principle. Small things are significant. Small things are significant. And in, in a culture where, where bigger and grander and, and more impressive was always viewed as better, Jesus proclaimed that his kingdom saw significance in small things. And, and, and in fact, the, his kingdom itself started out quite small. And yet, we look around today and it has permeated this world. And it has spread across this world. It started with one man and his 12 disciples 2,000 years ago. And look where it is today. Billions throughout history 
have come into that kingdom. So we can't, we can't discount the, the significance of small things in the kingdom of God. That, that, that small act of service performed for a person in need might be just the thing that confirms God's goodness and God's presence to them. Or that, that kind response that you give to someone who's all fired up with anger might just be the thing that penetrates their heart. You know, the, the quiet faithfulness employed over the years in a seemingly insignificant place, that might be the testimony needed to, to lead someone else into the kingdom. We look at our own world, our own culture. It's consumed with bigness and grandness, but we cannot overlook the small. Small things are significant in God's kingdom. Let's continue on. Look at verse 22, chapter 13. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and, and, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, some are first who will be last. So here Jesus spoke about the narrow door that, that many will not be able to enter through. Um, they won't be able to enter either because they refused to go in when that door was open or because they desired to go in only after the door was closed. That's what Jesus talks about here. And, and, and this type of analogy is a common one that Jesus would use uh, to point to himself as being the entrance into the kingdom. John's gospel, for example, Jesus is referred to as the gate to the sheep pen, he, he refers to himself as the way, the truth, and the life. So there, when it comes to God's kingdom, there's no, there's no back doors, there's no side doors, there's no secret doors to get in. There is one door. Jesus himself is that door through which all people in the kingdom must enter. And so the kingdom principle we see is that Jesus is the door into the kingdom. And according to Jesus, then, it's not, the, it's not the religious leaders or even the Jewish people in general who, who were entering in. Instead, it's those, in this example, it's those from the east and west and north and south. It's a reference to Gentiles. Those who previously were considered to be excluded from the kingdom, at least the religious leaders considered them to be excluded, they were the ones finding their way in through Jesus, entering through the door. You know, there'll, there'll be many in the world who, who will not enter the kingdom because they refuse to go through the door. 
in our world today, which, which, which seems obsessed with charting its own path and making its own way and finding its own door to get in, we have to stand firm upon this truth that Jesus is the only door into the kingdom. We have to accept that truth ourselves, believe that ourselves, enter through the door ourselves, but also then present that truth to others, even if it's not popular, in the hope that they will enter through that door themselves into the kingdom. So we see that principle. Let's, let's continue on. As I said, we got seven principles to get through. So verse 31, chapter 13. That very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today. Tomorrow, on the third day, I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? You are not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not come, uh, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this is kind of a fascinating scene. The, the, the Pharisees, they warn Jesus about Herod Antipas, who's, who's ruling at that time. And I, I just kind of wonder what the motives of the Pharisees are here. It, it sure doesn't seem like they're pure motives concerned with Jesus' well-being at least when I look at the rest of the rest of the Gospels and how the Pharisees are presented, so it seems like maybe they had some some uh, shady motives here. We're not told specifically, but but regardless, in response to them, Jesus sends a message to Herod, basically saying, "I'm not worried about you. Not worried about you, Herod." He wasn't scared that Herod would kill him. Why? Why wasn't he scared about that? Jesus knew that wasn't his purpose. Jesus did not come to earth to be killed randomly by Herod. He came to earth not to die at the hands of Herod, but upon the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. That was Jesus' purpose. That was God's purpose for him. Nothing on earth was going to be able to stop that. And so that's why Jesus speaks so confidently here. That's why he's just not worried about Herod. And, and so the kingdom principle that, that we see in that is that nothing can thwart God's purposes. That's what gives Jesus the confidence in his response. Nothing can thwart God's purposes. What, what he's carrying out in this world will be accomplished. Then and now. So, so just as nothing could stop Jesus' first coming or his death upon the cross, so nothing will stop his second coming or his reigning over his kingdom. Nothing will stop that. So, so when, when we feel tempted to, to worry or to fret, because it seems like a worldly power is, is setting itself up against God and against God's kingdom, we can rest and we can find comfort knowing that God's purposes will come to fruition. They will be carried out. Maybe We maybe don't know exactly how and all the specific details, but they will be carried out. We can rest in that 
just like Jesus did here in his response to Herod. Um, Now we come to chapter 14. We already looked at the first six verses that talked about that Sabbath scene. But I do want to point something out here uh, because from the beginning of chapter 14 to the end of uh, where we'll stop this morning, uh, it it all is the same setting. It's all the same scene that's taking place. That scene is a meal at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees. So that's the scene for these, these, uh, these next principles that we'll, that we'll examine. Now one thing we need to note is that banquet meals in that context were not just social affairs. They were, they were also avenues for displaying honor and, and value. So a host of a banquet, a host was considered honored based upon both the number of guests that would come and also the importance of the guests who would come to the banquet. And then likewise, a guest was honored based upon the importance of the host who invited them. And this is an honor-driven, honor-centric culture. You might say our culture is power-driven or wealth-driven, this first century culture was honor-driven. Honor was more valuable than wealth. It was more valuable than, than power. And so these banquets were a way to display honor, gain honor. And in addition to the, the banquet itself, the seating at the meals would convey something about honor and privilege. The, the seats closest to the host were reserved for those with the most honor. You think about a, a wedding reception today, and we can picture that, right? We know which table at the wedding reception is the most honor. It's the one up front with the bride and the groom, the wedding party, and, and we know which tables are next. It's the closest tables right up center with, with parents, siblings, grandparents, other family, right? So, so there's no question which tables contain the most important people at a wedding reception. We've probably all been at a wedding where we ended up at the back corner, right? Maybe you couldn't even see what was going on at the front table. So we, we get this. We understand how that type of situation works. Very similar at these kind of banquets. Now, since this meal, this setting for these, for, for what we're going to talk about here, since that meal was at the house of a leader of the Pharisees, we can safely assume that that there were many people present there who were high up on the social ladder. This was a significant banquet that was taking place. Rank and status, honor, it would have been on everybody's mind at uh, at this banquet. So we can't miss that as we read the further proclamations that Jesus makes about his character and about his kingdom. So so let's pick it up in in verse 7. Chapter 14, verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. Then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. 
Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So in that culture, just like ours, people strive for greater status, higher status, and, and these banquets were a way to do that. So a person could attempt to sit closer to the host than they might normally sit, and if nothing was said to them, then their status was secure. They've, they've gained honor. I mean, we can think ourselves back to a, a wedding reception we've been to. Maybe it was a second or third cousin of yours, and you were assigned to the back table, but what if you went and sat at the table of the parents just to see what would happen, right? Maybe you get to stay, and if so, wow, you've really moved up. Maybe you're told, no, no, you're back there, and you have to take that walk of shame back. I mean, that, that's this type of setting here. But Jesus looks at it all, and he says, no, no, a person ought to, ought to humbly seek the lowest position rather than try to push the envelope, rather than try to exalt themselves above everyone else. His kingdom is built on humility rather than pride. That's what we see here. And so the, the kingdom principle is that honor is given by God, not grasped or earned by people. You might say honor is given by God to those who humble themselves, not to those who pridefully grasp that honor, grasp power. So, so contrary to, to a, a dog-eat-dog world where, where everyone just looks out for themselves first and foremost, Jesus, he humbly came to earth and he served mankind. We see it all throughout his life. It's one of the defining characteristics of him, but as we see here, it's also to be one of the defining characteristics of his kingdom as well, that those in his kingdom live that, that humble life as well. So again, while he's at the same banquet and he's just spoken to the guests, Jesus next turns and he speaks to the host about the kind of people, the kind of guests that that host ought to invite next time. So, so look at what he says in verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So again, we go back to that honor system, that honor culture. Banquet invitations were given to those who deserved them or who could adequately repay them. So a person would never dream of inviting poor or, or crippled or lame or blind people. You wouldn't do that. Not, not only would they not be able to repay you by inviting you to their banquet, but because they came to your banquet, you're now associated with them. And, and if, if they were not held in high esteem, which they weren't, then your position of honor would decrease. So to invite 
people like that to your banquet would only cause your honor to decrease. And that was the exact opposite purpose of these banquets in that culture. So this is totally turning it on its head. Nobody would have ever functioned in that way. God's kingdom, however, does function in that way. And so the kingdom principle we see here is that God invites those to himself who cannot repay him. That's who he is. That's what he does. And no one in the kingdom of God deserves it. No one there has earned it and can adequately repay it. That's great, isn't it? Aren't we thankful for that? Man, I mean, the only reason any of us are invited to come into his kingdom, come be with God, is solely because of his grace and mercy toward us. It, it's not our high standing. It's not our ability to repay him. It's not our, our ability to increase his honor because of who we are. It's none of that. It's God in his mercy who invites us to be with him. And then finally today, the last short scene, as Jesus is talking at this banquet, one of the guests there seems like he caught on, that Jesus was talking about not just these banquets of the culture, but that he was talking about the kingdom of God. Somebody was catching on to that. But, but that person wrongly assumed that he was part of that kingdom. So, so look at uh, verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. See, he's catching on. But he, but Jesus said to him, a man once gave a banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry, said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So in that culture, inviting someone to a banquet was a two-step process. A, a host would, would send a first invitation to which the, the recipient would RSVP. And, and those RSVPs would allow the host to know how many people were going to come, be able to adequately, properly plan for the, the crowd that would be there. And then once things were ready, a second call would go out and tell the people who had RSVP'd, it's ready, come. The banquet is, is going to commence. The individuals in Jesus' story here had received that first invitation and they had RSVP'd positively that, that they were going to come. But once the, the call went out, the second invitation went out that said, everything's ready, it's time to come, they, they were unwilling to do so. They'd said they would, but, but they were now not willing. 
And, and in fact, the three excuses given in this story were, were pretty poor ones. I mean, I, it would have, been, would have been quite insulting to the host. Again, these banquets were all about honor. And so to be rejected in this way was, was no small deal. That would have been very insulting to the host. But even though those who were invited, even though they refused to come, the banquet wouldn't be empty because word was sent out to bring in others of the city, others of lower status, and even then to go outside of the city and bring in guests. So it wasn't those who initially said yes who would be at the banquet, but it was those who actually came when that call went out. The, the religious leaders that, that were with Jesus here, I would say they had received that first invitation, this invitation into his kingdom. As God's people, they had been invited to come and commune with God at his banquet in his kingdom. But, but as we saw in the story, when the second call finally went out and, and then the time had finally come to come into the banquet, and of course, I would say that call was Jesus himself. He was the one that said, come, right? The kingdom of heaven is near. It's time to come in. Well, they were then rejecting the call. They were refusing to come into that kingdom for, for one reason or another, whatever their excuse might have been. And so the final kingdom principle that we see is that, is that those who say they'll come to God but don't won't be in the kingdom. So responded to the first invitation, but then later on when it was time to come in, they didn't. Those who say they'll come but don't won't be in the kingdom. So it's not enough to simply hear about the kingdom, receive the invitation, even think favorably about it. That's not enough. One must actually enter through the door that we talked about and come into the kingdom when the king calls. And as is the theme all throughout Luke's gospel, really all throughout the Bible, it's those who are considered lowly or outcast in society who are often the ones who are responding positively to that call to come into the banquet, come into the kingdom. So there it is. There's a seven-point sermon for you. There, there's a reason that we don't see many seven-point sermons. I don't make that a habit, but... Uh, uh, you know, as I was uh, thinking back over this, I, I think a great thing to do this week might be to take a moment each day and kind of dwell upon one of these kingdom principles, thinking about the implications for our own lives. Um, seven kingdom principles for seven days. It, it works out great for this coming week. So I would, I would encourage you to, to think about doing that. Um, what I want us to do as is, is we conclude this morning is, is take a step back and consider all of these kingdom principles together. Uh, all of those who are followers of Jesus are part of his church, which is like an embassy here on earth. Uh, when people look at us, um, Paul even calls us Christ's ambassadors. When they look at us, they ought to see a picture of what it looks like to live in God's kingdom. So, so we've been appointed by Jesus to be his ambassadors in this embassy here in Eureka, Illinois. There's an embassy here. Did you know that? Little old Eureka. There's lots of embassies, actually. Quite a few in our, in our small town. Embassies of God's kingdom. 
So if Jesus were to step foot in this building today, would he find an embassy full of ambassadors who are truly living out his kingdom in this foreign land? I think that's a good question we can ask ourselves. Do we, when we think about these kingdom principles, do we proclaim that Jesus is the narrow door into the kingdom? Do we humble ourselves before God and serve others rather than pursue honor? Uh, do, do people take precedence over traditions or, or preferences? I, I think those are all, all questions that, that we ought to keep before ourselves. Again, as Christ's ambassadors, we're given this calling to live, that, live out the kingdom here in this embassy. Uh, the, when you think about an embassy in a foreign country, it, it ought to look a little different than the culture around it. The church of Jesus should look and function differently than the world around it. And it's because of what we are. It's because of who we are. We should look, we should function according to the character of our king and the kingdom over which he rules. That's, that's who we are called to be as ambassadors of Christ. And so we get some good pictures this morning of, of what that looks like, some practical principles regarding Jesus' kingdom. Let's stand together and uh, let's... Uh, Let's both dedicate ourselves to that calling and also uh, ask God to lead us in that because uh, if we're honest, we don't, we don't always live as ambassadors like we, like we should, but God can lead us in that and empower us to do that. So Heavenly Father, I, I, I give you praise this morning. Um, first, that you are a king, that you have a kingdom. I think we have to start there. Thank you so much for that, and, and I thank you that you came to declare what your kingdom is like, that you came to provide a way into that kingdom, and that you call us to come in. I'm so thankful for that. God, we know that, uh, that you are that door, that it's, it's only through your sacrifice on the cross, it's only through the forgiveness that you give to us. It's only through your holiness that we can ever enter in. And so I thank you for, for so many of us who've, who've found that door, who've been called in and who have walked in. And God, as your ambassadors now, we want, we want, to, live, want to live as ambassadors of your kingdom. Not just because it's a better way to live, not but, but because it brings you honor, because it, it proclaims you to the world around us. And we know we need your strength in that. Uh, we, we struggle with, with sin. We, we continue to struggle with our, our fallenness. And, and we need you to, to lead us, to continue to transform us, to sanctify us. And so we ask that you do that. God, we want to be a an embassy here in, in Eureka, Illinois, and wherever it is that you send us, that we can show your kingdom, live according to your kingdom. And God, I give you praise for the, the joy that comes from doing that. I give you praise for the, the glory that you receive as that happens. And so I pray that even now as we come into a time of, of singing praises to you, proclaiming your 
your role as king. Uh, I pray that that's what would be taking place, that we would be ambassadors living out your kingdom. And then as we go out from here as well, that it's not just in these walls, but that it's everywhere that we go. So empower us, strengthen us, guide us, God. Continue to draw us toward yourself. We humbly ask that in your name. Amen.